Welcome to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. Today, we'd be sipping on just a good old cult classic. We have Starbucks. (laughs) Erica was on her way to my house for our final goodbyes. Yes, we're in person today. Yes, but this will be our last time for like a year, so very sad. Gonna cry. No, I'll be back. I got a $100 voucher from Southwest. Hey, shouts out Southwest. Shouts out Southwest. Um, but today we'd be sipping on, I've got passion fruit tea, which she said kind of tastes like a kiddie pool that's been dirty for about a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I disagree. I think it's lovely. What do you have? I have my usual, which is a matcha lemonade with no water. With no water. Mm-hmm. I do love matcha. So good. Some I, people think it tastes like dirt, but... That's I, why I like it with lemonade. Oh, I just like it. I have it in my <laughs> cabinet. I just like the You dirt. do like those dirty tasting drinks. I like the drinks. dirty tasting drinks. Okay. I gave up coffee kind of in the morning. How? I used to have coffee every morning. Now I don't. So I want to switch to matcha lemonades every hey, morning. still caffeine. Mm-hmm. Plus antioxidants. Yes. And if anybody has some matcha recommendations, then... Hit a sister up, because she's trying to get into the matcha game. Mm -hmm. Do we have any updates today? Mm, No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't feel like talking about it right now. Another time. Okay, we will update you on whatever she's thinking in her head another (laughs) time. Well, thank you all for continuing to support our podcast. We are loving all of your comments, your reviews. It's been super awesome to see those come in. Keep listening. Keep sharing. If you haven't followed us already, it's just Crime on Caffeine on all social medias. Our website is just crimeoncaffeine.com, and you can listen to us literally anywhere you want. With that being said, Erica, what we got today. So, we have an unsolved case today. I hate these. Yeah, this is a uh, this is up there with Brian Schaefer. This is one of those ones. This is Maura Murray. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> drives me insane. <laughs> so, this is just a really weird one. I mean, in I feel like in Brian Schaefer's case, there are options, but this one Every single theory is pulled so far out of left field because there's nothing to go off of and just it doesn't make sense. Yeah, so this was actually called the first crime mystery of the social media age. This was a case that was just huge on the internet, web sleuths, everything back when that stuff first started, like MySpace. The internet just became obsessed with trying to solve this case. So James Renner became obsessed with this case. He had a whole website dedicated to it. He wrote a whole book on it. A lot of the details I got were from him, but he spent the last 15 years just putting everything he had into this case. So Wow. Yeah, thank you, James Renner. But yeah, so she was born on May 4th, 1982 in Hanson, Massachusetts to Fred and Laura Murray. She had an older brother named Fred. She had two older sisters named Kathleen and Julie. She had a younger brother named Kurt. They were raised as Irish Catholic, and her parents divorced when she was six. She mostly lived with her mom, but, you know, she still had, like, a fine relationship with her dad. She was super athletic in high school, and she was the star of the track team at Whitman Hanson Regional high school. 
She was accepted into the United States Military Academy at West Point to study chemical engineering. Wow. Yeah, so So smart girl. Smart smart girl. Mm -hmm. She stayed for three semesters, but she was getting into some trouble. Stealing credit cards, things like that. Oh, she was dealing things. Yeah. She thought that she was going to be expelled. She transferred to UMass Amherst. And studied nursing. So total career path change. Still super smart. Still super smart, of course. She has a boyfriend that she met at West Point. His name is Billy. Um, They met in 2001. They started dating shortly after that. In November of 2003, she got in trouble again. This is where the trouble with the stolen credit cards started coming up. She was kind of just like buying food with stolen credit cards. This time she didn't get busted because she had past good behavior, like didn't really do anything except stealing a little bit of makeup in the past, but nothing really came of that. So she was fine. She apparently started drinking a lot during the time leading up to her disappearance as well. And drinking and driving was something that occurred for her a few times too. So she was definitely pretty troubled. Yeah. On February 5th, 2004, she was working a security job at school. It was kind of just like a front desk job. And she was on the phone with her sister and they were talking about like her sister, her issues with her fiance. So her sister had just gotten out of rehab and on the way home from rehab, she was there for alcoholism. Her fiance took her to a liquor store and she had like an emotional breakdown. I don't Why know. In I don't know. The world would <laughs> That'd be a logical thing to do. I don't know. I wish I knew. At like 1030 at night during her shift, she just completely broke down in tears. Totally randomly. And her supervisor went up to her to see what was wrong. And they said that she was just completely zoned out, like catatonic, staring into space, like not moving nothing. Wow. There is some speculation about that, which we will get into later. Okay. But the supervisor ended up just walking her back to her dorm. It was like 120 a.m. And once again, he asked what was wrong. And all she said was, my sister. That's it? Yeah. Okay. On February 7th, her father, Fred, came to visit her. She was telling him that she needed a new car. She was driving a Saturn. It was just, she knew she shouldn't be driving it because it was shit. She needed a new car. So they were going to go look for a new car. And then at night, they were going to go out to dinner with one of her friends, Kate. Kate was like her closest friend at school. So after dinner, she borrowed her dad's car for the night, a Toyota Corolla. And she, (laughs) she dropped him at his motel. And then she drove his car back to campus to go to a party at one of the dorms. Which I'm like, did you at FSU? Did you guys have parties in your dorms? Like, no. I know we would like not pregame to go out. How do you have a party in your dorm half the size of this room? (laughs) She arrived at the party at 10:30, and then at 2:30 she left the party and she was driving her dad's car. So at 3:30 a.m. on the way to her dad's motel, she struck a guardrail on Route 9 in Hadley, Massachusetts, and it caused about $10,000 worth of damage. Wow. Yeah. So That's police showed up and they filled out an accident report. Um, they didn't give her a sobriety test. So well, why? I don't know. It was really interesting to me. I mean, it was three thirty a.m. Completely crashed the car. Yeah, You'd think that they would, but maybe she was acting so sober that they were like, "All right, whatever." They ended up driving her back to her dad's motel to sleep. And at four forty nine a.m., she placed a call to her boyfriend from her dad's phone. Or so it says there was a call from her dad's phone to her boyfriend. I think it was just like her telling him about the crash and stuff. Okay. And then the next morning, Fred learned about the damage of the car and he called the insurance company to see what was going on and he learned that they would cover it completely. So she didn't have any reason to be freaking out, but she was freaking out. So he just needed to tell her that she had to get the accident forms and fill them out on Monday and turn them in. 
So he rented a vehicle. He dropped her off at UMass and he drove all the way back to Connecticut. But he didn't tell her about the insurance and like the forms and stuff until 11.30 p.m. that night, which is so weird because you'd think that was like the first thing on his mind. You'd think he either would have called her right away or in the time that he was driving her, he would have told her. She was so worried about it, you know? So and not just tell her in the car? Yeah. And you were driving a rental. Like you'd think it'd come up in conversation. I don't know. Suspicious. Weird. Super weird. Just like some little weird instances are going to keep happening. But they made plans to talk on Monday and discuss those forms over the phone. Around midnight later that night, she used her computer to search for directions between the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts Mm -hmm. and Burlington, Vermont. The first reported contact there was with Maura this day was at 1 p.m. when she emailed her boyfriend, Billy, saying, I love you more, stud. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promised to call today, though. Love you, Maura. So then she called a condo complex in Bartlett, New Hampshire. Um, Her family used to stay at this condo complex, but she was asking about renting a condo for a week. They did not rent her the condo. A little bit later at 1.13, she called a fellow nursing student. At 1.24, she emailed a faculty member of her nursing school and said that she would be absent for a week due to a death in the family. But nobody in her family died. What? Mm-hmm. Okay, T. T. At 2.05, she called a number to inquire about renting a hotel in Stowe, Vermont. And at 2.18, she left her boyfriend a message promising they'd talk later. She packed her car up with belongings that definitely made it look like she was going away for a short period of time, but also showed that she'd be coming back to school because she brought her textbooks. But she packed toiletries, she packed clothes, birth control, and then, this is weird, so later, after her disappearance, police searched her room, and they found that she packed everything up in boxes and like took down all the art from her walls. Why? I don't know. We'll never know. So police assumed that she'd packed her things between Sunday and Monday. But she left campus at 3.30 p.m. in her Saturn that day, and classes happened to be canceled because there was a snowstorm. Okay. At 3.40 p.m., she withdrew $280 from her bank account, which was almost everything in it. Uh, She then went to the liquor store and purchased, like, $40 worth of alcohol. It was kind of just, like, a bunch of everything, whiskey, wine, vodka, everything. Okay. And then she left Amherst somewhere between 4 and 5 p.m. The last recorded use of her phone was at 4.37 p.m. to check her voicemail. Around 7 p.m. that night, a resident of Woodsville, New Hampshire, heard a loud crash outside. And outside, she saw a car against a snowbank along Route 112, and it was pointed west on the eastbound side of the road. 30 minutes later, she called the Grafton County Sheriff's Department to report the accident. And according to the 911 log, the woman claimed to have seen a man in the vehicle smoking a cig, but later she said it wasn't a man smoking a cig, but it was actually a glowing red light that came from the inside of a car, and she said it might be like a cell phone or something. I yeah, I don't just totally two different. That's I don't. But who knows what she saw? Either way, she was the one who called nine one one. I don't think she knows what she saw. (laughs) No, she definitely (laughs) doesn't. Another neighbor reported seeing someone walking around the vehicle. A third neighbor, who was a school bus driver, he was on his way home, pulled up beside the vehicle, and he noticed that Mora was not visibly injured or bleeding, but she was freezing and shivering. Like I said, there was like that snowstorm that day. Okay, yeah. He offered her his phone to call for help, and she begged him not to call the police, and that she said she'd already called AAA, but um, they checked, and there was no record of her ever calling AAA. I think she was just scared because of all the alcohol she had, and like some of it was open, so safe to assume that she'd been drinking and, and driving. And she had just gotten into another accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
But the bus driver kind of knew that she didn't call AAA because he knew that in the spot that they were in, there was no cell reception. So there's no way that she could have called AAA, no way she could have called the police. He headed home and he called the police anyway. The police arrived on the scene at 7.46 p.m., a few minutes after he called them. When they arrived, there was nobody inside or around the car. So she was gone. What? The car was completely inoperable. The driver's side was damaged from a tree, and the left headlight was damaged, pushing the radiator into the fan. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you couldn't drive it at all. The windshield was cracked, and both the airbags were deployed. It was also locked. Locked? Yeah. Uh, The seats were stained with wine, and there was an empty beer bottle. They found her AAA card, blank accident forms from the DMV, gloves, CDs, makeup, diamond jewelry, and driving directions to Burlington, Vermont, her favorite stuffed animal, and the book Not Without Peril, 150 Years of Misadventure on the Presidential Range of New Hampshire. So I do want to talk about this book for a second because there's a website called Not Without Peril that's dedicated to this case and all the information behind it. Okay. So this book, I'll read you the Amazon description. Among the most dangerous mountains in the world, Mount Washington has challenged adventurers for centuries with its severe weather. From the days when gentlefolk ascended the heights in hoop skirts and wool suits to today's high-tech assaults on wintry summits, this book offers extensive and intimate profiles of people who found trouble on New Hampshire's presidential range from the 19th century through present day. So I found this interesting that she had this book that was just about people going through these mountains in New Hampshire, which was like where she was headed, clearly, mm-hmm. and them meeting trouble while doing that. Because she was headed there and she met trouble. She did meet some trouble. Let me point out the obvious <laughs> here. <laughs> so not found in the car, important to note, was her debit card, her credit card, and her cell phone. To this day, these items have still not been used, so, like, no activity ever. They did, however, discover that she had a citizen's bank account that in 2011 was still active, and the only way that it could be active was if it was attached to, like, a car loan. Hmm. So, that was really weird. So, some of the bottles of alcohol she purchased were missing as well, police later reported. A writer for the Patriot Ledger described the crash. He said, at a hairpin turn, she went off the road. Her car hit a tree. At that point, a person came along who was driving a bus. It was a neighbor. He asked her if she needed help. She refused. Ten minutes later, the police showed up to the scene. She was gone. That is that. That's so bizarre. How do you go off of that? It's only ten minutes. She couldn't have gone far. Where could she have gone? I don't know. So the responding officer and bus driver searched the area of the crash. EMS and a fire truck arrived just before 8 p.m. to clear the scene out. At around 8.15, a contractor was on his way home and reported seeing a young person moving quickly on foot on Route 112, which was just four miles east of the crash. Note that he did not report this that night, but he reported it later once he heard about this and realized, like, oh, that could have been her. Because obviously, if you just see someone walking around, you don't think anything of it. Yeah, I wouldn't have reported that. Yeah. So once he heard about it, he was like, wait, what? Could this be helpful? But the person was wearing jeans, a dark coat, and a light-colored hood. So the car was towed to a local garage around 8.49 p.m., and the responding officer then left at 9.30. A rag that was believed to have been a part of her roadside assistance kit was stuffed into the muffler of the vehicle, which is really strange. That can't be good. Because who did that and why? Authorities reported her missing at 12 p.m. the following day, February 10th. This was almost 24 hours after the last confirmed sighting of her. 
And at 12.36, an APB alert was issued for her. She was reported as wearing a dark coat, jeans, and carrying a black backpack. But I was like, how do you know that? Yeah, I guess how would you know that? (laughs) I know the backpack they were looking for in her room and had been missing, so they assumed that she brought it with her. Okay. And that's something that they did look for for a long time. That was, like, one of their big things was they wanted to try and find her backpack. But a voicemail was left on Fred's phone at 3.20 p.m. saying that Maura's car had been found abandoned. He was working out of state, and he didn't get the call. So he didn't learn about what had happened until Maura's sister called him at 5. And because she was an adult, they had to wait until the following day before conducting a proper search. I hate that rule. It just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Because she could have been a runaway, which that's... I guess, but it just seems like there's too many other things pointing to her not being a runaway, in my opinion. I want to see if you still have that opinion by the end of this. By the end, okay. Yeah, so... I'll keep my mouth shut, then. <laughs> no, it's okay. Tell us how you feel. I did. And then you told me I wasn't right. <laughs> I didn't say that. I don't know what's right and wrong. You looked at me like I was an idiot. No, no, I didn't. She's lying, You were guys. like, hmm. No, is I meant that like... what you think? Because I know that your head is going to be spinning and you're not going to know what to think. My head's already spinning. I know. So in the meantime, the family called UMass Amherst to have them conduct a dorm search. And this is where they discovered all of her things being packed, the art taken off the walls. So she was planning on leaving and clearly she was planning on leaving, leaving. Okay, I forgot about that. So don't judge me. (laughs) Moore's dad arrived at Haverhill at 8 a.m. the next morning, February 11th, for the search. A police dog tracked her scent from the gloves 100 yards east from the crash before losing the scent. So they had nothing after that. Police took this as her leaving in another car at that point. Oh, I guess I never thought about that. Yeah. Interesting, right? And remember, this is 2004. There is no Uber. So she either met someone that she knew. Well, they said or that she there was hitchhiked. another person in that car. Man smoking a cigarette or a red light. <laughs> One or the or other. Or light. <laughs> We're not really sure. So her boyfriend, Billy, and his family arrived at 5 p.m. They were questioned. He'd been on a plane with his phone off when the disappearance occurred. So he's got an airtight alibi. Okay. We're just going to establish that right off the bat. We're going to close that canister. We're going to open him back up, but we're going to keep in mind that he has an airtight alibi. He did receive a voicemail, and at first he thought it was her just, like, sobbing. It was from an unknown number, but they traced it back to a calling card that was issued to the American Red Cross. But since then, the voicemail's been deleted, which is weird because I feel like it's evidence of some sort. So, like, why would he delete it, one? And two, why would police just let him delete it? That's what I was yeah. thinking. I don't know. Super weird. But at 7 p.m., the police said that they believe she was either a runaway or she committed suicide, and her family was like, no, to both of those things. They didn't think either of those things were very likely. So the next night, Fred and Billy held a press conference in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. Police spoke out again, saying that they believe she might be headed toward the Kankamagus Highway, which, why did you think this? Where do you get that? Unless that's the only way to get to New Hampshire, which is where they thought she was going, which... Pulled it right out of their arses. Yeah. She was listed as endangered and possibly suicidal. They also stated that she was drunk at the scene of the crash, though the bus driver reported that she did not appear to be impaired. And that's not fair that they said that because you have no evidence of that other than... You don't even have her. No. There's no toxicology you could perform. No, you didn't. Yeah. The seats were stained from the wine, but she got in a car crash. So... 
the bottles, the bottles could have broken. Have broken. It was boxed wine. Oh, yeah. That thing's uh, popping right yeah. open. So you can't prove that she drank it. I feel like she probably had a drink just because she had a pattern of doing that. But I don't think it was fair of them to assume that and then go out and say it to the public. Yeah, that's messed up. Yeah. The family was so fed up with the police at this point, which I would be too, because they're basically just saying, like, nah, fuck you guys. They're just she saying ran what away. they want to say. Yeah. They have no evidence. No evidence. Um, so the family expanded the search themselves to Vermont. Despite missing persons cases usually being handled by local and state police, the FBI got involved about 10 days after the crash. And the Haverhill police announced that the search was now nationwide. They conducted another ground search. They did an air search using thermal imaging, cadaver dogs, and tracking dogs. Maura's sister discovered a pair of ripped white underwear lying in the snow of a trail near French Pond Road on February 26th, but DNA tests confirmed that they did not belong to her, and the searches were all resulting in dead ends. Nothing was coming of them. Like, they couldn't find that backpack like they were looking for. They couldn't find anything of hers and nothing to show where she could have gone. There was no trace of this girl. Okay, I'm sorry. Even if she's a runaway, though, like, how can you not find anything? But Fred continued to return every single weekend to search for his daughter to the point where Haverhill police informed him that people were starting to complain of him trespassing on their property. So he was going hard to find her. And not much really happened the rest of the year. In July, the fourth search around the crash site occurred, and it was the first search with no snow on the ground. So they were hoping maybe that would kind of help things. And once again, they were most concerned with finding her black backpack that was missing from her vehicle that night. Once again, search was inconclusive. So this is kind of weird. Um, <laughs> at the end of the year, a man gave Fred his brother's knife, and he said that he thought that his brother used that knife to kill Mora. And he said his brother had a criminal past, and he lived less than a mile from the crash. And he explained that his brother and his brother's girlfriend were acting super weird after she disappeared. But a few days after the knife was given to Fred, the man's brother scrapped his vehicle and the man's family was saying that he made the story up for reward money and that he was a drug addict and don't listen to him. So nothing really came of that. Uh, the following year, Fred ended up suing several law enforcement agencies at an attempt to gain access to the case files because, like I said, nothing was going on with the case, but the family didn't know anything that was happening on the police side. Which is, once again, a reason why they were getting so frustrated. In February of 2019, so this is pretty recent, Fred insisted his daughter was dead and further believed that the house that those cadaver dogs sniffed near the crash in 2006, that's when that was. The people who owned the house did not want them to come search it or look. They were, like, super uncooperative, but... The new owners of the house were super helpful. They allowed for several searches of the ground and of the home, and they allowed for an excavation. Nothing came of this. Nobody, nothing. That's where we are now, just like timeline-wise, evidence-wise. There's a lot of details just kind of given like where she was going, what she was planning to do. There's so much speculation, so many weird little things that you're not sure. Is this important? Is this not important? We're going to go into talking about some of the theories and some of the people involved and just kind of see, see what we think about that. Because obviously with missing persons, we can't really do a profile. So I like to talk about the theories. We're going to talk about her dad first. So this is a big one. People believe that he had something to do with it. And that's not even in like a, they believe he did something to hurt her or kill her, but they think maybe he helped her like get away. 
but he refused to sit down with detectives for an interview until about two and a half years after his daughter's appearance. He never wanted to go into detail about Maura's troubles. Obviously, the police wanted to know about her past because it might give them like a picture of where she could have gone or who she could have been with, what she was doing. But he was like, none of that stuff matters. All that matters is finding her right now and the crash, which I mean, being her father, I kind of understand why he felt that way. But at the same time, it probably would help them like a little bit. And you never know what could help them. I feel like you want to tell them. Right. You never know what information an investigator can take and be like, oh, this is going to lead me here. Exactly. So something that's kind of weird is two days before she disappeared, he took $4,000 out of his bank and he could have just gotten cash from the teller. He could have just written a check. He went to like eight different ATMs to pull out this lump sum of $4,000. He didn't want anyone to know that he was doing that. Um, And clearly like giving the money to daughter. He could have been for sure. Two days before she disappeared. Why... They went car shopping, but, like, they were doing that together, so I don't know why he would need to give her the money by herself, and they didn't end up getting a car or anything. Nothing came of it, so... Hmm. That's kind of where I understand this theory of her dad kind of helping her to disappear, just because he knows all of the trouble that she was in and her troubled past and... You know, maybe she wanted to start over and he wanted to help her kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see him hurting her or doing anything like that. He's 78 years old and he's still showing up all the time to do these searches. So this is another weird theory that people tried to connect, which when you hear it kind of sounds like holy shit, but it was debunked. There was a student at UMass who the evening that Mora had been crying at work that one night, mm-hmm. he was a victim of a hit and run and he was in a coma. Then when Fred came to town, Mora said her car was having issues and she needed a new one. And her friends noted that she was not having issues before this time. They knew the car was like in bad shape, but she was still driving it. So it was fine. Right. And they didn't mention car shopping to anyone. Um, not even the friend that they took to dinner that night. Like they didn't mention car shopping to her or anything. And so that's where people were theorizing that she was the one who hit this guy. And then that's why she went back to work and she was crying. And people think maybe she ran away due to the guilt and the fear of the consequences associated with this hit and run, especially because she's had trouble in the past. Dang. Mm -hmm. That would have been a good one. Wouldn't that be crazy? And like if people from the internet were the ones that put that together, that would be so crazy. That would be wild. But there was a post on Reddit that broke all of this down and they determined that the timing just didn't really work. Maura did have a short break during her shift, but it wouldn't be a long enough break for the hit and run to occur. Right. So while it sounds like it could be perfect, it just didn't really work out. Dang. Let's talk about the boyfriend. Didn't really have a lot to say about him so far. You will learn that he's not a good person. Oh, he's not? He's not. Like I said, he was her boyfriend at the time. They met in 2001 at West Point. Um, They had several calls and voicemails leading up to her disappearance. He also did a Reddit Ask Me Anything, and he said, he answered like a million questions. He said a lot of nice things about her, about her dad, talked about the disappearance, talked about their relationship, talked about like what he thought, where her head was at before she disappeared. And he was talking about how she was super excited for the summer and they were making a bunch of plans together. And he didn't know about the New Hampshire trip that she planned. And he also didn't realize that she was upset until that day that she wasn't answering 
blaming him because she got in the accident in her dad's car. Mm-hmm. Everything leading up to the disappearance, she was fine. Like her head, she was good. He had no idea if she was going through something, if she was depressed, if she wanted to run away. Like he did not get that vibe at all. He did discuss how the Saturn she was driving was super shitty and Mora knew she shouldn't be driving it. So the car shopping thing does make sense. Okay. Mora had an affair with her track coach in the summer of 2003, and she was referring to Billy as her ex. The track coach claims that he didn't even know Mora's father was alive. Um, She ended up ghosting him at the end of the summer, and then in the fall, she explained to him that she got back with Billy, so, like, they were done, which I don't really think they ever broke up. Doesn't sound like they broke up. I don't know. Maybe they didn't break up, but either way, he got super bad vibes from Billy. He said that he'd talked to her about it. He knew that Billy was super controlling and she wanted out, but she felt like she couldn't get away from him. Mm -hmm. He thought that maybe Billy was physical with her and she talked to him about running away and she said that she wanted to disappear. So that was kind of what he was thinking. He was like, seems like she did it. Good for her. Dang. Yeah. So then we have... Some things come out about Bill, Billy, Billy old pal, Billy Bob, William, William, Bob, William, Bob. (laughs) We kind of already heard a little bit from the track coach about how he's not a good guy and he could be physical. So in the fall of 2015, four women came forward with some stories about him from when they worked with him at Ray Group International in D.C. in the year 2011. Oh, no. So one woman claimed that he pushed her down the stairs in the metro, and then he tried to pretend that it wasn't him. Another woman claims that she thinks that he destroyed ultrasound photos of her unborn baby that she brought to the office like to show everyone. What? Yeah, like, what? Who does that? Are you good, dude? Another woman claimed that Bill brought up how he and Mora were breaking up around the time of her disappearance, and he said he's glad things worked out the way that they did. Dude, why are you still talking to her seven years, or talking about her seven years later? That's so weird. Yeah. What caused him to lose his job at Ray Group International was a sexual assault claim that took place in the president's office after hours. I freaking knew this was coming. (laughs) Yeah. So this claim came from the same girl who was pushed down the stairs. Oh my God. Yeah, so she was out with friends near the office, and she went back to the office after this one night, and Bill was there, and he was drunk, and he asked her to come into the president's office with him. He, like, locked the door. He wouldn't let her leave. He admitted to being the one who pushed her down the stairs, and she was trying to leave, and he was, like, blocking her. Oh, no. Yeah, so he pushed her face down on the table with his body up against hers, and she was struggling and, like, trying to get out from under him, but he kept on pushing her down harder and harder and was just up against her, you know, all up in there. Luckily, a co-worker arrived before it could go any further, and he threatened her, like, not to tell anyone. He ended up being indicted on one count of felony third-degree sexual abuse in, I want to say, 2019. But as this was leading up to it, all of these people kept coming out with stories about him and just how violent he was and just a bunch of different things. Terrible. Yeah. So, like, one woman claims in 2004 that she was assaulted by him, and he said, I'll kill you like I killed Mora. What? Yeah. He would also speak of her and saying, like, he would refer to her as my girlfriend that passed. What do you mean? Yeah, what we do don't, you mean? We don't know that. And apparently she hooked up with someone at that party, that dorm party, and he knew because he had access to her voicemail. And there were voicemails from her friend Kate talking about how she hooked up with this guy. And I guess he, like, found out and he went rogue on social media. He was, oh my God. yeah, yeah. I've got suspicions about this guy. 
Well, but remember, he has that airtight alibi. He was on a plane, phone off, airplane mode. Hashtag airplane mode. I don't believe it. I I don't believe it. He's not nice. He's not nice. And that's why people speculate that she wanted to get away from him. And so that's why she kind of like disappeared. And other people speculate maybe she was pregnant. And that's why she disappeared because she didn't want him to know. And she didn't want him to know the child, wanted nothing to do. And she, you know, if she was pregnant, she'd be stuck with him. Yeah. But if this were the case, the child would be turning 18 next year. So, if that were true, which would be kind of insane, Wild, yeah, there's a chance that we could find out about it if the child's 18. So, those are some, some of the theories surrounding Billy. If you look into this guy, there's so much more about him going on with this court case. A bunch of people started coming out with things. Like, there was one girl that said, he hit me across the face and chipped my tooth, I believe, with one of the rings he was wearing. This girl said there would be welts on her backside from hitting. There were multiple times he would choke me and call me Mora. Mora Murray is his former ex-girlfriend. She went missing in 2004 and has never been found. That's what one of the victims said in court. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Okay, this guy's got like a deep seated issue. Yeah. So while he was under investigation for sexual assault, this was in 2018, he was deployed to East Africa and he worked for a PSYOPs project for the U.S. Army. And his role had a lot to do with social media, specifically Twitter. I'm just reading this off James Renner's website right now. But he was supposed to be monitoring accounts of suspected ISIS members. And while he was tasked with protecting American citizens, he created a fake Twitter account, which he used to stalk and harass James Renner. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And active military are forbidden to use this job to target American citizens. So he was not allowed to do that. And he's fucking crazy. So James filed a complaint with the inspector general's office. They did an investigation, but they weren't able to find any evidence. But he was back in the U.S., and he was awaiting the trial for the felony sex abuse. And he'd already been found to have stalked yet another woman. So this is where we're at. And he ended up reopening that investigation because Billy told podcasters that he was the creator of the fake accounts. And so they re-interviewed him. <laughs> so he's stupid. Yeah. So in conclusion, so they re-interviewed him and he admitted to them that he created the fake profiles on Twitter using the alias Anti-Bully Batman. So he used the account to contact a film festival that was running a documentary that James directed, and he tried to accuse him of murder. This boy a mess. Yeah, he literally tweeted, and we'll post the screenshots, but he said, Breaking, anonymous source witnessed at James Renner talking to Mora at a gas station in Akron, December 2003, two months before she disappeared. The drive from Mass to Ohio she spent Xmas in Ohio with her boyfriend goes right through Akron. Why are we just learning about this now, Jim? I like how he calls him Jim. Jim. Like, who who told you you were that comfortable with him? I've received word that a civil lawsuit is being brought against James Erner. There may be opportunities for others to join in the case against him. Much more to follow. Hashtag I'm Batman. Hashtag be brave. Shut up. Which, <laughs> this is so crazy because, okay, James Renner is 
incredible investigative journalist. I've listened to him talk about the Brian Schaefer case. I've listened to him talk about the Amy Mahal Javek case. Like, you know, he loves the unsolved too. Right. And he put his fucking heart and soul into this. It had nothing to do with this. He did not even know this girl. Right. Nothing. And the fact that this dude is going out of his way to have a fake account and make up that this guy murdered. Like how <laughs> messed up in the head are you? And why do you want to pin it on this guy so bad? Because I feel like he had something to do with it. Now I've got all these theories in my head. <laughs> it's just so weird. Like all of these tweets are just talking about him. He goes, we survived another week. Well, barely for Jim. Good news. It gets better next week, Jimbo. I promise. What's his beat? I know. Reiner claims that Billy and his family have been using fake social media accounts to steer the narrative of Morris' disappearance for nearly 17 years. And one of his uh, his sexual assault victims revealed that he was behind a fake Reddit account that actively attacked other people on the subs that were dedicated to Morris' disappearance. Jeez. Yeah, and his mom, Sharon, is connected to a fake account on WebSleuths. Great. Like, Why? <laughs> They probably wouldn't let him have an account, so he used his mom's name. (laughs) I just, like, why is the entire family getting involved in trying to, like, change this narrative? They're trying to point it away from him, but it makes him look much worse. All of this is making him look worse. Yeah. That's an interesting take. I won't lie. Super interesting. Yeah. There's a lot about him. I don't even think I've scratched the surface, but then we have kind of the theory that James Renner came up with, which was this new life theory. Mm-hmm. I know people thought this about Brian Schaefer too, but basically he thought that Mora left to start a new life and he thought that she was possibly living in Canada. So there was also a woman that claimed to be her psychiatrist like online and she said that she's alive and she said that she was in Canada. No idea if this is true, but my God, just kind of piggybacking onto that Canada theory. There were claims of sightings of her with cult members. Cult members? Yeah. We also have a former New Hampshire state trooper named James A. Conrad. So he had been on the case back when he was a state trooper still. He was since retired. And he was on Facebook kind of spilling some tea in the comments. And he claimed that she was murdered and buried. And police know this. And, like, he knows this. But they didn't have enough evidence to prove it. So they didn't ever release that information. But he also had a little incident happen in 2017 Hmm. as his wife was separating from him. He like went crazy and he threatened to kill his fellow state troopers and it was like threatening suicide by cop. He was chased by police and yeah, it was really bad. So happening. (laughs) Yeah. Not sure if anything that he says is credible, but he did go off in the comments. But I feel like if any part of that was credible, it would have been looked into. Right. So those are some theories. There's, I just feel like there's so many theories because there's literally no, there's nothing. There's no information so you to go, go off of. anywhere. I, I could make a theory. Make one. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> what, so what do you think? The runaway thing is probably the most plausible, but this whole ex-boyfriend thing and how much he's kind of involved in all of his past situations Mm -hmm. makes me feel part of me wants to look a little further into him and what I don't, I don't know. He just seems so sketchy and like, there's no reason for him to do any of that if there wasn't something weighing on him or he needed to make it look like it wasn't him, you know? But if we're not going to look at him, then I do think the runaway thing, I guess. 
but I just, I'm not convinced. I'm it's kind of convinced. like you have no other right. thing to go off of. So, cause and all the other ones were just like a little too outlandish. Yeah. I mean, cause obviously like we didn't even discuss, there's a million possibilities of foul play. Right. She could have met with someone, you know, if she did get in a car, she could have hitchhiked yeah, or someone she thought she trusted, but she didn't. There is something I did want to talk about going back to the Billy and the sexual assault thing. So people were trying to figure out what it was that made her break down and cry and go into that like catatonic state that one night at her job. Right. People kind of were looking into around the time that she left West Point. There was an investigation into sexual assault because there were a lot of sexual assault claims that were coming forward at this time. And they found that 6% of women at West Point at that time had been sexually assaulted by people there. Wow. Yeah. And so people were kind of speculating, was she sexually assaulted while she was there? And was that part of the reason why she transferred? Why she started acting out? Yeah. And just completely like career path switch from something that's, you know, it is a more male dominant field engineering and then switching to nursing, like to very female dominated. Yeah. Not trying to put anything out there, but that is something that people were trying to figure out. Yeah. Speculating. So that was very interesting. And then obviously Billy did go to school there Mm -hmm. and he is a sexual abuser. Another thing is that UMass Amherst did have a cabin in New Hampshire and athletes had access to this cabin. There were like keys that they could get and they could go stay there. That was something that people thought maybe she was going there. Very plausible things. Very plausible. I just don't get how she has never been found and not any part of any anything has been discovered. There's no information. No, and unless someone knows something and they're not saying anything, I don't see what could come out in the coming years that hasn't... Already. You're not just going to find new evidence somewhere. Like, the only thing that I can think of is if the pregnancy thing were true and then we found out about the son, but I can't think of anything else that would make moves in this case. But... Yeah, that's it. I think I definitely in the future want to revisit this case and kind of like go super, super in depth because I didn't realize how much there was when I got into it and and I felt like I was like a little over my head and over my head. So I definitely want to look into it even more. You know, maybe we'll come back to it at some point in the future, but I want to know your guys' opinions. For those of you who have heard this case before and already had opinions, or if you're just listening now, you're just hearing about it now, and you want to look into it a little bit, do some research, tell us what you think. We want to talk about it with you guys. Send us some DMs on Insta. You can email us, crimeoncaffeine at gmail.com. Yeah, tweet us, whatever you want to do. We want to hear. Yeah, we want to know. And then on our next episode with Allison's next week, we can kind of talk about some of your guys' theories. But let us know because this is something that's going to have us going crazy for a little bit. But I'll never understand. I just won't. I know. This is one of those cases that you want solved so bad and it's probably never going to get solved like Brian's and like Aisha's and yeah which is unfortunate well thanks for leaving me with that <laughs> anytime anytime you're so nice <laughs> just just doing my job just doing my job Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, continue to follow us on all of our social medias. It's just Crime on Caffeine, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You know the deal. 
Thank you guys. Um, Keep suggesting those cases. Suggest some coffee you want us to try. Keep leaving us reviews. We really appreciate it. We appreciate you guys telling your friends, telling your fam about it. And thank you so much. We will be back again next week with another episode.